This is a message from Leading the Way with Dr. Michael Youssef. We pray that it will encourage you in your walk of faith. If you would like to learn more about Dr. Youssef or Leading the Way, please visit ltw.org. When a husband and wife get into a fight or an argument, and uh, that argument develops into a full-blown war, the natural inclination is that we begin to view each other as the enemy. But is that really true? Who is the real enemy? How was that enemy able to use one or both partners into that war? When two believers disagree, and that disagreement degenerates into a war of words, and then a public is divided into two camps, two factions perceive each other as enemies. Can really two blood-bought, redeemed believers be enemies? Who is the real enemy? And how does that real enemy manage to enter into the heart of one or both or many of those individuals? When a Christian who knows that sexual impurity is dishonoring to God and is dishonoring to the body and dishonoring to the mind and dishonoring to the soul, but then he keeps falling or she keeps falling in it again and again. And eventually they began to rationalize them and blame the circumstances and blame everybody else around. What is happening here? What is that person doing to allow the enemy into their life and cause them to be defeated all the time? Or take an active, vibrant church that seeks the lost, equip the saints... And then one or two individuals come into the church and they said, we don't like that idea. We need to move in a different direction. We need to do some social service. We need to do some counseling. We need to do this and we need to do that. And they move it out of the will of God. And then they soon, few of those detractors come in and gather some more detractors around them. And within a short period of time, that church becomes dead and deadly. Let me tell you, having come back from England... We have seen with our own eyes in St. Andrews, Scotland, some of the great revivals of our time of post-Christian era. Now, now have six, some of the greatest churches of the Reformation have six elderly ladies worshiping in them. Magnificent building. We have seen it with our own eyes. What happens? What is happening? And I'll tell you what happens. Generally speaking, a goat gets in the middle of the sheep. He tries to look like a sheep and bleats like a sheep. And everybody thinks he's a sheep. And then he gets some more goats around. And then they try to detract the church from its call to serve the living God. You know, the Apostle Paul talks to the elders in the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. And he didn't tell them to worry about the liberals or worry about the the pagans or worry about this group or that group. Now, that's a rough translation, but you get the meaning. He said to him, he said, what you should be worrying about are the wolves that are going to rise from within the church to devour and destroy the church. Who is the real enemy of God's work that is working within those individuals? Who is the one who really wants to destroy the work of God? How do these original members and complainers allow the enemy to use them in order to destroy so many of the churches that I have seen in recent times. Well, today I'm going to start and begin a series of sermons entitled, Know Your Real Enemy. Know Your Real Enemy. 
my friend Archie Parrish, some of you know him. I was telling him about this, and he said, when I landed in Korea 50 years ago, he said, they handed me a brochure. All the, the American soldiers were handed a brochure and entitled, No, Your Enemy. Inside the brochure contained all the information they needed to know about the North Koreans. What are they like? What do they think? How they attack? What is their ultimate goal? But the tragedy is among the army of God, the church of Jesus Christ, the tragedy is that the average Christian is ignorant of the real enemy. The average Christian is oblivious to the invisible war that is taking place right now. The average Christian is unaware that like it or not, we are in a state of warfare. The average Christian does not know how to fight, let alone win, over Satan and his cohorts, the demons. And consequently, the cunning enemy uses born-again, spirit-filled, and all those wonderful titles. He uses believers as his emissary to do his bidding in order to destroy the work of God. You say, how come? How come does the enemy get into a believer and uses him or her to destroy the world? Well, I'm going to tell you. When a person becomes a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, when you come and you surrender your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and said, yes, there is no way of salvation except through Jesus, you have moved from darkness into light. You have moved from the destination into hell to heaven. You are saved from eternal damnation. But you know what? You're not yet sanctified. Well, what do I mean by that? I want you to imagine it this way. In your soul, in your spirit, there are many doors. Imagine it like a house of many doors. You have come and you surrendered your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. But one or two or more of these doors in the house of your soul are still ajar. They're not bolted. They're not locked up. Satan comes in. He pushes on the door. Once he found the soft spot, he's right in there. <laughs> you know, in the Middle East, professional thieves never break and enter. Never break. They go around in the houses and they push on the door. <laughs> they see what fool lift the door unlocked and go in, steal and rob and destroy. Satan is a gentleman thief. <laughs> he does not break and enter. He comes into your life and you are the one who will allow him to come in by leaving some of those doors ajar or you can refuse him entry by locking those doors on a daily basis. What do I mean by this? Well, anger is a door. If the door of anger is left unbolted, if it is left unlocked up, Satan is going to enter into your life through that door and then going to create havoc, not only for your life, but all the relationships of other people around you. Bitterness is a door. Hatred is a door. Rebellion is a door. Jealousy is a door. Sexual lust is a door. Greed is a door. False guilt is a door. Shame is a door. Attraction to the horoscope and fortune telling on your cult is a door. These doors, if they're not daily bolted and locked up in his face, they will give your enemy access to your very soul. Well, the first step toward defeating your enemy is to know your enemy. That's the first step. Know your enemy. Know how to shut him up. Know how to defeat him before he eats your lunch. Because that's what he wants to do. 
know his operational procedure, know what he thinks, know when he attacks, how he attacks, where he attacks. And there is no army that is worth the name that is not on the alert and is not knowledgeable of his enemy's activities. To have victory over the real adversary of your soul, you must understand your adversary. You must remember, however, that we are the only army that was ever assured of victory before the first shot was ever fired. Therefore, temporary defeat in your life, temporary defeat in our lives, come when we willingly or ignorantly allow these doors to be open, when we are not on the alert, when we are not watching out. Someone said to me some time ago, I'm not afraid of the devil. I said, that is not the issue. The issue is, is the devil afraid of you? What have you done lately to scare the devil? What victory have you to make him run for cover? When George Whitfield went to Boston, a prominent minister in Boston, you can imagine, a blue blood Boston, came to him and he said, Mr. Whitfield, I'm very sorry you came to Boston. To which that great evangelist replied, So is the devil, sir. So is the devil. (laughs) Dr. Graham Scroggie, one of the great preachers in Edinburgh, Scotland, he was explaining how many Christians today refuse to believe that the Bible is the authoritative word of God. And he said, they call Genesis a myth and the revelation a mystery. And he was speaking to a group of Christians and he said, No man is clever enough to come up with this. Only the devil, Satan himself, he is the one who is the author of all this stuff. And then he continued to say, and I quote, And the reason the devil is so anxious to get rid of Genesis and Revelation is because in Genesis his sentence is declared. And in Revelation it is executed. (laughs) So let's begin with the basics. Who is the real enemy? Your real enemy is Satan. Your real enemy is the devil. So where did Satan come from? Did God create Satan? Is God responsible for evil? Does God take responsibility for Satan's havoc? You know, children always asking these questions. You know, where did Satan come from? And some adult Christians are at loss how to answer them. Turn with me to the book of Ezekiel 28 beginning at verse 11. In that passage of Ezekiel 28, beginning of 11, we have the most definitive passage as to the origin of Satan. Where did he come from? After Ezekiel was addressing the enemies of God, the people of Tyre, he turns around and he addresses the king of Tyre, who is a type of Satan. In the Bible, all the enemies of God, people like Pharaoh, are the types of Satan. Anyone who oppresses the people of God were type of Satan. Pharaoh was referred to as a type of Satan. And here the king of Tyre is personifying Satan because he is the leader, he is the ruler of the enemies of God. And therefore I want to declare to you, my dear friends, that any king, any president, any prince, any ruler who refuses God, who rejects God, He is in the image of Satan. Any government that rejects God, that government becomes the seat of Satan. Why? Because Satan uses people to accomplish his purpose. Because Satan always employs willing agents to do his evil bidding. Well, look at verse 12 and 13 of Ezekiel 28. Satan is described as Lucifer is his original name. 
When you hear the word Lucifer, that's from which we get the word light, that's who it is. Satan, that's his original name. He was known as Lucifer, which means the light bearer, the brilliant one, the shining one. Here's Ezekiel addressing Satan. He said, you were a signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in the Garden of Eden. Every precious stone was your covering. And then he goes on to name the stones. And your settings and mountings were in gold. On the day you were created, they were prepared. Lucifer was created by God. He is a created being. In verse 15 of Ezekiel 28, it was said that he was perfect in his ways from the day he was created. Hear me right. God is the only uncreated being. God alone is eternal. God, the Holy Trinity alone, has no beginning and has no end. And God created innumerable angelic hosts. Why? To serve His purpose in the universe. There are too many to even number. If the kids say zillions, it won't even make it. There were innumerable angelic hosts that God created. One of those angelic beings was Lucifer. As a created being, he was obliged to offer worship to offer praise, to adore the Creator God. He was perfect in every way, according to verse 15. He was the epitome of wisdom. He was the ultimate in beauty. That's how he was. So much so that God delegated to him the executive responsibility of chief administration of the angelic hosts. He gave him all the power over the angelic hosts. In Ephesians 1.21, we are told that there are numerous ranks, numerous classes. There are numerous grades for these angelic beings. Each rank or class have a different responsibility. Each rank or class have a different area of ministry. Each rank or class have a sphere of work that is different from the other. And in Hebrews 1.14, he tells us that the angels are ministering spirits. They are the servants of the living God, whom He sent to protect. He sends to preserve. He sends to take care of His elect, to take care of His chosen people, to take care of His believers, to take care of His church, to take care of the heirs of salvation. Please hear me right. If it was all up to Satan, he would depopulate heaven. <laughs> How would he do it? Well, first, by preventing men and women from coming to the saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then when they do, he keeps them ignorant about himself and about the Word of God. He keeps them in ignorance. That's how he does it. But God's angels are everywhere. Everywhere doing what? Preventing Satan from accomplishing his purpose. Preventing Satan from doing his dirty work. Preventing Satan from stopping you from coming into the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Isn't that exciting? I don't know about you. That God's angels waited through time until I was born. And nobody. But God didn't think so. And then these angels prevented my foolishness. When I thought that I could know God my way. They prevented my ignorance. They prevented me from my foolishness and the attempt of Satan to stop me from coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ as the Lord of my life and the master of my life. And then the angels continue to watch 
over me day and night. I don't know about you. It thrills me to my beings to think of this. Especially when I get behind the wheel of my car. <laughs> a few weeks ago, I took two of my colleagues in the car with me. We were going on a pastoral visit, and, and I sure made a believers out of them. <laughs> they actually saw my angels. <laughs> That's why I don't preach too much about bad driving. It's too convicting. <laughs> I'm convinced that when I get to heaven, I'm going to see my angels, and they're all going to have tattered wings. <laughs> God created these beings not only to protect His own, but God uses them to perform miracles in your life. Do you know that there are hundreds of miracles that are happening in your life every single day and you're not even aware of them? That is because God's angels are coming and He put charge over you. He commissioned them. He commands them. Go down. Take care of Him. Take care of her. Take care of Him. These are my child. This is my child. This is my daughter. This is my son. In fact, in the book of Acts, chapter 5, verse 19, and in chapter 12, verses 7 and 8, the angels were deployed by the Lord to open the prison doors for the apostles. In the book of Revelation, we see the angels, chapter 16 and verse 1. He was one of the angels going to be commissioned to pronounce judgment upon the disobedient and those who refused to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. These angelic beings are described by Isaiah in his vision of chapter 6, a shining light. They're shining creatures. You know, they must be awesome sight to see. They have to be. You know, every time when the angel appeared to Mary, and then when he appeared to Moses, when he appeared to the shepherds, every time the angel appears, he always said to them, fear not. Why do you think that's so? Because they must be awesome to look at. They must be an awesome sight. Awesome looking creatures. John the Revelator tells us that these angels... Do not rest day and night, forever saying, Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. That's what they do. Back to Ezekiel 28. Lucifer was one of the highest ranking angels. He was at the highest level. He was one of the cherubs who could look upon the throne of God. You remember Moses could not see God? And he had to cover his face. But this angel, Lucifer, was able to see the very throne of God. He was able to bring, to voice praise, to voice adoration, to voice worship to God. And that was the kind of privilege, that was the kind of authority that Lucifer had from God. When God created Lucifer, he created him with the capacity to reflect the glory of God, the majesty of God, the splendor of God, like very few angels. All of these precious stones that you see here, described in Ezekiel 28, all of these precious stones cannot shine by themselves. If you put them in a dark room, you couldn't even see them. They only were able to shine because they were reflecting the glory of God. They were reflecting the beauty of God. God is the one who made Lucifer radiate. God is the one who made Lucifer scintillate. God is the one who made him reflect the beauty and the glory of God. Because he has had no beauty of his own. In fact, that is why Lucifer was called the shining one. And you know the Bible said Satan masquerades as an angel of light. That's who he was. He knows how to do it because that's who he was originally. 
and all his cohorts whom he sent to the churches of Jesus Christ to try to destroy the work of God. And I'm going to tell you some more documentation about what is happening in this country in some satanic churches. All of his cohort whom he sent to destroy the work of God masquerade as true believers. Lucifer stood between the creator God and the created angels. He was in between. It's an awesome power when you think about it. He brought worship from the whole universe to the presence of God. Then he took the answers of God's prayer and the blessings back to the universe. That is the responsibility that he had. He was, if you like, the middleman. And you know, being a middleman requires supernatural humility. Being the middleman requires supernatural maturity. But Lucifer could not handle this enormous responsibility. He could not handle it. So, in verses 16 and 17 of Ezekiel 28, look at it. Lucifer's pride, Lucifer's arrogance got in the way. Lucifer's wisdom that God gave him became perverted. Instead of faithfulness in serving the living God, he wanted to receive worship for himself. I want you to reflect very carefully of the questions I'm going to ask and I'm going to answer them myself. Did God know that pride would capture the heart of Lucifer at the time that he created him? The answer is yes. Because God is omniscient. He knows everything ahead of time. He alone is omniscient. Could God have prevented it? And the answer is yes. Because God is omnipotent. He could do anything. But here's the third question. Why didn't he? (laughs) Why didn't he? I'm going to give you that answer. I'm sure some of you want to know, right? You want to know why? I'm going to tell you the answer. Only in heaven you will know the answer. You can say to give him free will and give him choice and all that. That's fine. But the real answer will come when our bodies give way to the glorious body. When we see Jesus as he is, when we become like him, we'll know the answer. But I want to tell you, let that be a warning for all of us. And I mean all of us without exception. Pride will always alienate you from God. Whether it is a pride of accomplishment, whether it is a pride of knowledge, whether it's a pride of achievement, whether it is a pride of position, whether it's a pride of possessions, whatever it may be, pride will always trip you. Lucifer became proud of his beauty. He became proud of his intellect. He became proud of his capacity. He became proud of his attainment. And he failed to recognize that all he was and all that he had is a gift from God. It's a gift from God. Nothing without God. Absolutely nothing. A person, any person, is no more close to Satan and under Satan's control than when he or she is filled with pride. Isaiah 14, beginning at verse 12, God reveals to us step by step of what really went on in the mind of Lucifer as he rebelled against the living God. Turn to Isaiah 14, beginning at verse 12. 
How he turned from the Lucifer who was to the Satan that we know today. Five times in these three verses that he says, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. Five times. When God created Lucifer, he created him perfect. But he also created him with the capacity to choose. Just as he did when he created Adam and Eve. He created them perfect, but he gave them the capacity to choose. The moment God revealed his plan to Lucifer, God opened the door of possibility for Lucifer to rebel. Look at those verses. Isaiah 14, 13 and 14. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of the assembly, on the uttermost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. You see, Lucifer dwelt in the second heaven. The second heaven is the place where the interstellar space exists. God is in the third heaven. Yet, Lucifer was created to have access to God. He had access to the third heaven. He could move from the second to the third very quickly, very smartly, as the Australians would say. And therefore, when he said, I'm going to go up there, he said, I'm not going to go up there and pay him a visit. (laughs) He's not saying, I'm going to get a tour bus and see what's going on up there. He is saying, I am going to go up there and topple God from his throne and sit on it. He wanted to be equal with God. The created being wanted to expel the creator. Satan was pitting his will against the will of God. That's what happened. Satan wanted the sole administrative capacity over the angelic being. Instead of being in the chain of command, passing God's order to other angelic beings, he wanted to be the ultimate decision maker. He wanted to receive the recognition that rightly belongs to God. He wanted to receive the worship that was rightly belongs to God. He became deceived, and he thought that his beauty was inherently his. He was insanely jealous, and he forgot that all of his wisdom and all of his glory were only the reflection of the wisdom and the glory of the God of heaven. And that is why God tossed him out of heaven. Please listen carefully. I'm not going to go for very much longer. If you forgot everything I said so far, I don't want you to forget what I'm going to say. It is the most important part of this lesson. Lucifer's sin has been reproduced throughout history again and again. It was reproduced in Adam and Eve when they believed his lie and wanted to be like God. It was reproduced after the people of God brought out of the slavery of Egypt to the promised land, turned their back on God and worshipped Baal. It was reproduced again when the proud Pharisees refused to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the real light of God, the only anointed Messiah, the only Savior. It was repeated again. But it is repeated every single day when an unsaved person refuses to submit to God's authority and refuses to submit to the authority of His Son, the Savior of the world. 
It is reproduced again and again. For the unsaved don't want to acknowledge that they cannot know God by their own mind. That they cannot reach God through their good work. That they cannot be saved their own way. They have to be saved God's way. Not only that, that Satan's sin is being reproduced by the unsaved. But it is reproduced sadly and sorrowfully even among believers today. And that is why the Apostle Paul warns in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6, do not let an immature Christian in leadership. Why? Of course, this has nothing to do with age. It has everything to do with spiritual maturity. Why? Hear what he said. Lest that immature Christian is being lifted up with pride, he will fall into the condemnation of the devil. Please listen to me very carefully. I believe with all my heart there is no temptation that faces us, that faces you, that faces me ever more frequently or confronts us more persistently or entices us more subtly than the temptation of pride. Because Satan is seeking to reproduce himself. Therefore, let no man think of himself more highly than he ought to think lest he thinks like his enemy thinks. And I'm going to conclude by going back where I started. Because pride manifests itself in many, many different ways. The different manifestations of pride are the very doors through which Satan is coming in, feeling you out, pushing on it, checking you out, making sure that if you left it ajar, if you left it open, he will get in through that door and he will create havoc in your life. It's a manifestation of pride. And he will come in to destroy, to rob, and to steal. Listen, the source of anger is pride. The source of bitterness is pride. The source of jealousy is pride. The source of hatred is pride. The source of rebellion is pride. The source of betrayal of your marriage vows is pride. What door or doors in your life, in the house of your soul, are you leaving a jar for Satan to come in and out of? What door or doors that you have not bolted every single day? There are some Christians who think what you need to do once you identify this weak area, that door for which the demon is coming in, you bolt it and you're okay. You got one experience and... Glory, hallelujah. No. That's why you keep falling again and again. The Bible speak in the Greek tense is a continuous word that you do it once, but you keep every day doing it. You get up every morning. When I get up at 5 o'clock every morning with my eyes still closed, walking down, I'm bolting these doors. I'm clocking. I'm imagining them in my mind. I'm locking them up, bolting them, keeping them out, keeping them out of my life, out of my family's life. I'm standing in intercession with these doors bolted. Every single day you can't afford to miss a day. Do you want to close these doors to Satan's emissaries? Do you want to close them to Satan's demons that are constantly, whether you know it or not, they're constantly prowling, constantly roaring, constantly looking for an opening to come in? Unless you deal with these open doors, Satan will steal your peace. Satan will rob you of your joy. And Satan will destroy relationships. Shall we pray?
if the Holy Spirit of God has brought you under conviction. And I have never, ever prepared a sermon without the Spirit of God brought me to conviction first. And I want to tell you from the depth of my heart, do not ignore that voice. If the Spirit of God saying you need to repent and turn, don't say, well, someday, tomorrow, next month, when I'm older, say, yes, Lord. If there's a door in your life that constantly left a jar, and you know it, Satan knows it, and God knows it, say, Lord God, I want to bolt this, and I'll keep bolting it every single day of my life. With your power and your strength, I'll stand. Heavenly Father, we are privileged people. Because we know that we cannot do a thing with our own strength. And it is with joy that we hand over the keys of our lives to you. Lord God, bolt every door. Strengthen us. Empower us. And Father, if it would please you, use us for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen.